This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a British violinist who is no stranger to Australia. The leader of the Britain Sinfonia, Thomas Gould, has been described by The Guardian as an artist who refuses to be defined by a single genre, and his repertoire certainly backs that up, having performed and recorded extensively with classical and jazz ensembles. And he's back now in Australia to perform Philip Glass's second violin concerto, The American Four Seasons, with the Omega Ensemble, and I'm delighted he's come practically straight from the airport to be in conversation with me today. Thomas Cool, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. Well, no rest for the wicked, but I'm guessing you have to get used to getting off a plane and getting straight into it. It's good to have a couple of days off before the rehearsals start. I think we start on Thursday. But, um, yeah, there's not been much time to plan what I'm going to say in this interview. So <laughs> spontaneity is spontaneity the word of the is, day. is king. Well, as I suggested in the intro, this is not your first time performing in Australia. In fact, I think you first made it over here for the Australian Chamber Orchestra. Is that right? I've done two things with the ACO2 uh, or ACO Collective, as it, as it now is. And, and the first one was in 2011. That was a 15-date tour from Sydney all the way up coastal New South Wales, Queensland, all the way up to Brisbane, Cairns, Darwin. So I saw a really interesting section of Australia that I think a lot of Australians never even see. And certainly a lot of visiting artists don't get to see either. Right. And it was a brilliant program. We did the Goldberg Variations and arrangement of Schubert's Arpeggioni Sonata for violin and strings and a piece by Erki Sventur. So that was a really happy Mm. first trip to Australia. And there've been there've been a few a few since there yes. was another one with ACO Collective with um, a Sydney Dance Company a few years later which was also really enjoyable. Yes, but this time it is with the Omega Ensemble and it's Philip Glass that you'll be performing. Now he's a composer who I think uh, you Brits might uh, call him a bit of a Marmite one. I don't know how whether you uh, think that too. How do you approach uh, his work and and this work in particular? Well, I've, I've done the first violin concerto a few times and. I think that's a real masterpiece. I mean, the second movement of that of that first violin concerto is just one of the most amazing things. I think the second violin concerto is less immediately identifiable as a as a masterpiece, but it's a it's a piece that that grows on you and that you sort of appreciate more the more you get to know it. One of the big differences between them is is that the second concerto is just for for strings, violin mm. strings and synthesizer. And in this version with that we're doing with Omega Ensemble, we're doing it with quite a slimmed down string section, um, which gives you the opportunity to be much more kind of um, chambery and actually fewer players can play with more dynamism and more mm. energy conversely because you have more sort of so- soloistic playing. So going back to glass, I think there's there is something undeniably special and powerful about his about his music and it has a huge numbers of fans i mean there are, in london there are, there are people who who only go to philip glass yeah. concerts and they they scour the internet for performances of his music and they're, they're you know really devoted mm. is and that because of his film music do you think i think it's i think there's just some some power in in the repetitive mm. hypnotic quality of of his music that not not many other composers achieve. I've played one of the operas. I think he wrote 14 or 15 operas. Gosh. Um, and a number of them are based on Indian themes. And I've played one called Satyagraha. Glass's operas are, are regularly done in, in London because they are guaranteed to do well at the box office. And um, Satyagraha, which is about Gandhi, is one of the ones that's done a lot. And I got to play it and that was really important because I sort of mm. discovered a deeper side to Philip Glass's music I think and and the the Indian influence is h- hugely important to him it, they're very long all, <laughs> all of his operas Wagnerian almost <laughs> yeah and this 
second violin concerto is is pretty long, yeah. forty minutes. So, is the American Four Seasons title is that something he's given it, or is that a nickname that's uh, something he's he's yeah. given it? But it's a very veiled reference to the seasons. I mean, there's no spring, summer. It's just movement one, movement two. Mm-mm. This this might just be me, but I think I think that you can identify some connection with Vivaldi seasons in terms of articulation. And there's there's a lot of short staccato notes or little rhythmic motifs that seem like like they are connected to mm. Vivaldi. But I think it's a, a very loose depiction of, <laughs> of, of of the seasons. And it's quite a bleak piece actually. I mean there's a there's a lot of introspection in this in this piece. There's a there's a lot of uh sort of very kind of thoughtful and deep reflection. It yeah, it's not it it's not particularly happy music. It's quite mm. quite pensive. Interesting. It takes you places. Mm. But powerful. I think the mark of a great piece is that it can be interpreted in different ways and that the performer can really put their own stamp on the music and that's definitely true of this piece i mean he's 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 not a control freak at all in terms of what he writes in in the music he leaves a lot of room for for interpretation mm-hmm. well we've got to go to our first piece of music now and uh, well your first choice is something performed by the omega ensemble and uh, well one of their favorite composers i think nico muley tell us about uh, what you've got here and why you've chosen this one i picked this one because this tells the story of how i how i met david rowden who um, runs the omega ensemble and is playing ross edwards clarinet concerto in the same concert this goes back such a long way but we were both students at the Royal Academy of Music in London in um, 2001. And we met this brilliant composer, Nico Muley, when we were on an exchange at the Juilliard School. And Nico was just immediately impressive. And he was just already fully formed as a compositional voice. And separately, both David and I have gone on to have uh, long-standing collaborations with Nico and th- this was the piece that we plays on that exchange when we were in our early 20s and we were all meeting and making friends in in New York and it's a brilliant piece
Nico Muli's By All Means. We heard the Omega Ensemble conducted by Gordon Hamilton. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, the violinist Thomas Gould. Tom is performing Philip Glass with the Omega Ensemble on Tuesday the 20th of June at the City Recital Hall Angel Place and on Saturday the 1st of July at the Newcastle City Hall. There's also a performance in Melbourne too. So get along to omegaensemble.com.au for all the details. Well, Tom, I understand that we have your older sister to thank for you becoming a violinist. Tell me about that influence. My older sister, Cleo, is a very distinguished violinist in in the London scene. She's had a number of high-profile positions. She was artistic director of the Scottish Ensemble, leader of London Symphonietta, which is the contemporary music group. And she led the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra for years and years. So very, very successful and eminent violinist. And she's also a very lovely and modest and humble person so she's been a very good influence on me but yeah my childhood was spent going to concerts and and listening to because she's 15 years older than me so she was sort of on the other side of you know she'd made it through all the years of misery (laughs) practicing the instrument and she was at the point where she was having quartet rehearsals in our family home and it was all laughter and fun and it seemed cool and it, it it was a natural thing for me to follow on in her in her footsteps so tell me about the the following on in the footsteps and you talked about the years of misery were they really all that miserable um I had a fairly well-balanced musical childhood uh looking back because I I played piano and percussion as well as the violin and I had jazz tuition on well, the drums was, was kind of the passport into jazz, but I had a wonderful jazz teacher at school. So it wasn't just kind of practising Paganini on the violin all the mm. time. And it was it was a fairly organic movement, I guess, from, from being a, a you know, fairly talented kid practising around everything else and having tennis lessons and drama and... You know, it wasn't just music, but gradually as, as I got more into teenage, it became clear that, that I was good at the violin. And mm. and then when I went to the Royal Academy at 18, I had to work quite hard because I had quite a lot of catching up to do technically, having maybe not gone to music school like some of the competition had. So I had to catch up and do a lot of practice. That didn't obviously prevent you from getting into the Royal Academy, though. Oh, no, it was it it was fine. I mean, I was I was still one of the better ones, but I just... Having been a big fish in a small pond, yes. when you when you go to uh, a world class music college and and you're up against the best violinists of their age from China and Australia and Holland and America, then you realise that if you're going to make it, then you have to get up early and get to the practice room, at, you know, at seven a.m. when it opens. I really muscled down in those years and did did a lot of lot of work. And that's actually when I stopped playing jazz, interestingly. So I did jazz as a teenager. And then even though there were great jazzers and a great jazz department at the Royal Academy, I didn't have any anything to do with it. But the jazz and classical were kept quite separate at, at, the, at the Academy when I was there. But then when I came through the Academy, that was when I started getting interested in jazz again and collaborating with people like Willem Simcock, who is a brilliant jazz, British jazz pianist. But he'd frustratingly been on the jazz course at the Academy at the same time as me, but we'd never had the opportunity to work together until until much later. And then all my forays into, into jazz um, happened from, from that point on, really. And I played in a gypsy swing band called Man Overboard Quintet, which was quite successful for a few years and we made a couple of albums and I've done a bu- bunch of bunch of different things. I've always got some jazz projects bubbling away and it's been very good I think for my classical playing and 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 just for keeping a sort of sense of balance and mm. perspective to to have to have that extra string to my bow. Yeah, that siloing that you were kind of describing where the jazz people were quite separate to the extent that, you know, there was a guy that you didn't even really have yeah. anything to do with that was there at the same time. Yeah. Do they still operate that way and do you think that's actually a good idea? I think that the departments have become a, a little bit more connected now and there's a widespread sort of desire in classical music to connect 
with non-classical genres. Mm. But with jazz, it's actually very difficult because to play jazz requires more than just a desire to do so. And, and I mean, it requires training. It requires, I mean, to, to play it well, it, you need to you need to understand the the harmony of jazz, mm. the modes. You need to have a grounding in, in particularly in the harmony. I'd say, so you do get classical musicians who are who want to have a go, but maybe don't have the, uh, the just the sort of training, the rigorous training to to back it up. But you can always you can always catch up, and I do encourage people to. You know, if they have an interest in playing mm. jazz, to get the resources to actually, you know, learn how to do it. Mm. Well, our next piece of music now is uh, well, I think you mentioned it uh, when you were talking about the Australian Chamber Orchestra before. It's um, some of the Goldberg variations. Is that why you've chosen this one? Uh, I chose this one because it's an important piece to me, and because it's this recording is is me directing Britain Symphonia, which is my job. Um, my main job back home. It's always lovely when you when you work with a uh, a chamber orchestra without a conductor. Directing from from violin has has always been uh, a big part of what I, what I've done, and the the whole process is it's very enabling when you don't have a conductor telling you what to do because the role of a violin director is much more sort of administrative sort of fielding all the all the different ideas and trying to find a order out of chaos and i like doing that selection from J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations as arranged by Sitkovetsky, the Britain Sinfonia, directed from the violin by my guest in conversation today, Thomas Gould, who's here in Australia to perform with the Omega Ensemble. Going back to that thing you were talking about, about directing versus conducting, I mean, you're still the one making the decision, though. It's just that thing that you're kind of performing within the orchestra rather than in front of the orchestra. Is that right? It depends. With with Britain Sinfonia, it's a group where there's a a lot of experience in the ranks and uh, a lot of opinions i think it just it depends what on the group that you're going into some some groups that when i've worked in i work quite a lot in latvia and there's much more of a sort of expectation that the leader the director is going to tell them what to do and mm. come with uh, instructions for what everybody should do but i think the english way is a little bit more 
democratic than that. And it is like a chamber group. It, yeah, mm. it's just a big, a big quartet. That's the idea. I find, as the director, I find that more enjoyable to to work like that because it's actually a, it's a bit tedious when you when you're just telling people what to do. It's more, it's more exciting when there there there's a variety of ideas and you can um, field them and and find find a sort of common path through is is that desire to sort of work in that environment is that something that was sparked by you know those trips out here with the australian chamber orchestra for example i think that's something that my sister did uh i mean she my sister's really well known as a violin director and actually i remember one of those concerts one of those early uh, memories of going to her concerts was a concert that the scottish ensemble shared with aco in a in a bbc prom and I met Richard Tognetti. I was probably 15 or 16. And Cleo, my sister, introduced me to him and said, Tom, this is a very important man I want you to meet. <laughs> and we talked about With Nell and I, which is, I don't know if oh, you yes. know it, but this, mm. this sort of cult English comedy film. And Richard loves it. And we just sat there at this at this bar just quoting from With Nell and I for a, <laughs> for a few minutes. But um, I guess Cleo was... Like the sort of English counterpart to um, to, to Richard Tognetti, and I think there's if you're just a, a violin soloist just going around the world playing the Beethoven and Brahms and Mendelssohn and and you know maybe interesting repertoires, but there's only so much you can do when you, when you're just the concerto soloist and you have limited rehearsal time and there's a conductor calling all the shots. I, I think the job that people like Richard and my sister and increasingly me do is is more rewarding because mm. you you actually own the piece and you work on you know the rehearsal process can be so interesting and rewarding mm. well your sister's a violinist that inspires you and Richard Tonietti is a violinist who inspires you and I think our next choice of music is, a, is another violinist who inspires you what have you got for us here and uh, and why does this violinist inspire so this is a recording from the violinist Patrizia Kopachinskaya, known as Pat Kop to everyone. And um, I suspect she is a source of inspiration to, to me, Cleo, Richard, and probably every violinist alive, because she's, she's one of a handful of violinists in the last decade or two who've kind of rewritten the rule book on what good violin playing means. And she is such a, a maverick. I mean, Pekka Kuzisto is another one that, that I equally adore and could have chosen one of one of his recordings. But um, I went with Pat Kopp's slow movement of Prokofiev's second violin concerto. And this is playing which I would I'd love to be brave enough to play this melody with, with such fragility of sound and just... It, everything she does just seems completely right to me. Thank you. 
Pat Cop, or should I say Patrizia Kopachinskaya, the wonderful violinist we heard playing with the London Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Vladimir Jarovsky for the second movement, or part of the second movement, of Prokofiev's Violin Concerto No. 2. The choice of my guest in conversation today, British violinist Thomas Gould. Well, Thomas, you mentioned those violinists playing these works, and and I think there is something that's changed uh, in how a lot of these famous works have been performed over the last decade or so. Are there any older violinists, perhaps about violinists who are no longer with us, that you listen back to a recording from the 60s and you go, yes, that's my inspiration, or is it all the newer players? I had a big Ivory Gitlis infatuation phase, and I think a lot of, for listeners who might not know, that name he he died recently at the age of 96 he had an extraordinarily long life and career he was israeli but lived uh, most of his life in in france but had an amazing kind of rock and roll lifestyle and there are videos of him playing with the rolling stones on 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 youtube but you know a true virtuoso violinist and a, a real maverick who's playing is instantly identifiable unique and i had a huge uh phase of listening to his recordings and even trying to imitate his sound and then i kind of it was enough and i i reached saturation point and then and then i needed to stop listening to him but ivory gitlis is, is definitely one of one of my favorites so there are there are violinists from years back that i that I, you know, that still mean something to me. But I, th- I think that the we're in such a golden age of violin playing now, mm. and and so often we talk about the golden age of violin playing as being high fits and oystrak and menuhin. But actually, with Janine Janssen and and Pekka and mm. Pat Cop and your own Richard Tonietti, I mean, I think we, we've got an amazing roster of of violinists at, at the moment, and all st- still finding a way to to play the same music in different ways, which is the sort of magic of mm. music, really, you know, for the number of people who are, who are playing the Mendelssohn Concerto. With the really great violinists, you can tell who it is after a few notes. Mm. I want to pick you up on something that you said when introducing that piece of music about Patrizia's playing or about the feeling that you said you wish you were brave enough to to play like this. Now, I don't know whether that was just a, a sort of a slip of the tongue, as it were, but are there things that you, you'd you like to do that you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't go there because, you know, I've got to sell all these tickets? <laughs> I think Pat Cop is a real risk taker. Um, I mean, going back to that Prokofiev, she plays the, the melody, which traditionally is played in a very cantabile with the sweet vibrato, sort of classic, beautiful violin sound, and she plays it without a shred of vibrato. It's just it, it's like a like a folk violinist with not a very sort of refined technique, and it's just raw and and powerful, guttural vocal. But you don't necessarily win only friends by tearing up the rule book like that. And and I think Pat Cops almost. I think she's probably quite proud that she does infuriate all these purists and and has had, I'm sure, many bad reviews, as well as many that that say, you know, this is extraordinary, which which it is. But but there might be times when the experiment backfires. Mm. I think it's very repertoire dependent. I, I think that approach might be less successful in Schubert. Mm. for instance and yeah if you're if you're brave and willing to take risks then sometimes it's it's not going to work but if you i mean you mentioned box office and if you're a violinist who is just kind of playing it safe and making sure that the audience all walks out having had an enjoyable evening then you maybe don't quite manage to go to the extremes Mm. that that somebody like pat cop does Something on the experimental front. I saw that you'd done the same sort of little experiment busking in a tube station that uh, Joshua Bell had done in, in the New York subway. Can you tell everyone about w- what that is that you were doing and and, uh, and what the result was for you? Well, it was about, I think it's 10 years ago, but a, a newspaper in London called The Evening Standard had the idea to repeat the the quite well-documented Joshua Bell experiment when he went down in the New York subway 
and um, and basked um, incognito. And I did the same thing at Westminster Tube Station and had a very similar underwhelming response <laughs> from commuters. Yes, I think Joshua Bill got about $35 or something. I think it, something if, like if that. that for, I think, for hours of playing. I got, of playing, a, I got about £15. £15, pounds. yeah. I mean, it was, In shrapnel. It, it was, yeah, but it was, you know, we know that commuters are always in a rush and now they don't even carry change. And also, I think it slightly did a disservice to kind of career buskers who, I mean, I think there's a real art in in busking. I think they know exactly what the right music to play is. And I'm not sure that I did, you know, and I, and I, th- I think, um, I don't think I made a very good busker that day. <laughs> but what were you trying to prove or what was what was the Evening Standard trying to, to prove or find out? Uh I'm not sure that they were trying to. I, I, I wouldn't give them that that much credit. I, I think they were. <laughs> it just they were. It was just column inches. Yeah, I'm afraid it was a total gimmick. But it was quite. It was quite fun. Yeah. Well, I, I was kind of curious to see whether it's it's something to do with you know there are so many good players out there and um, we we kind of idolise the ones that do make it into the concert halls and uh, yeah. where is there actually and I guess out there, I guess it? we we also listen with with our eyes and, yes. and you know you 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 read a, um, a musician's biography and it's very impressive and you you follow them on Instagram and it's hard to to actually just listen to a musician and just judge them on on the quality of what you're hearing well, off into a, a different genre now to the music we've heard before. And, well, we're going there to cross silos and move into some jazz. Tom, uh, what's this next one? So this is a track by Jacob Collier, who I'm sure is familiar to everyone. And Jacob I've known since we were kids because his his mum, Susie, was actually one of my violin teachers growing up. So there's a picture of, of me, aged about 10, with... Jacob, aged about two in his garden. And years later, after Jacob had won Grammys and become a megastar, uh, he invited me to play on this track of his, which appears on Jesse Volume 2, I think. And it's a beautiful track called Luar that features Portuguese singer Maro.
that is definitely an incredibly cool piece of music. The choice of my guest in conversation today, the unquestionably cool Thomas Gould. Tom is here playing with the Omega Ensemble. Get along to omegaensemble.com.au for all those tickets. It does require, though, Tom, a very different sort of mindset, surely, to play that compared to the, the Philip Glass that we're playing with the Omega Ensemble, right? The Philip Glass requires a huge amount of concentration and stamina. It's um, it's very, very demanding. It's demanding physically because it's so repetitive and it goes on and on and on. And you don't have to just do something right once. You have to do it right eight times. And then pick the right moment where the variation occurs kind of thing. Exactly. Whereas I think playing a piece like Loire, although there was no improvisation in that, it was all written down by, by Jacob, but it's it, you know, it's much more about mood and, and feel, vibe. I think when I play the glass next week, the audience hopefully will have this hypnotic um, feel. Uh, you know, hopefully they'll really be taken places from the experience. But I think the, the attitude of the performers to take them on that journey is actually one of real hard concentration. Well, I'd like to know a bit more about your current role with the Britain Sinfonia now, which, which we have sort of touched on. We have a number of orchestras and ensembles in Australia, of course, beyond the main symphony orchestras. Uh, but in Britain, there are quite a few more of those orchestras. How do you try and set the Britain Sinfonia apart from comparable orchestras of that sort of size? Well, the big difference is that the Britain Sinfonia doesn't have a conductor. And that's unusual for mm. those because there are a fair number like that here. Yeah, in Australia, yeah. unconducted groups. Yeah. It, I guess it, it, that's in the UK, we've got Britain Symphony and there's a Scottish ensemble, which is also unconducted. But most of the groups, as you say, are conducted. I mean, of course, we work with conductors. If it's a big ensemble and it needs somebody to um, just, you know, gather everybody because the forces are too big, then we will invite a conductor in. And if it's a particularly complex new piece, we will invite somebody in. In fact, recently we were doing this piece by Elizabeth McConkie, um, Symphony for Double String Orchestra. And when we were practicing it in advance, we realized that it was just too too complex to attempt without a conductor. So we brought in a, a conductor just for that, for that one piece in the program. Uh, but generally, the, we find that the rewards of working without one are worth it uh, and it enables us to be very very flexible in in size and in in repertoire so we we can appear as a quartet and we can appear as a Beethoven mm. symphony sized orchestra you mentioned uh, a new work then uh, are you favoring newer compositions or over the established repertoire uh, no, we we do we do the whole gamut really. Uh, I mean, new music has always been important to Britain Savonia, and we've commissioned, God knows how many how many pieces. But we also play a lot of Bach. We've been recording Donizetti mm. recently, and everything in between. I mean, I guess we don't do so so much romantic repertoire just because we're. We're not a symphony orchestra, so that sort of precludes a lot of 19th century repertoire from us. But mm. yeah, we, we, it's it, playing in Britain Symphony is a pretty cool job because you you play so much repertoire and and you also collaborate with so many non-classical musicians. We've made a lot of really interesting collaborations with Rufus Wainwright, Yaga Yazist, Brad Meldal, all sorts. Mm. What piece that uh, unfortunately is on today's cutting room floor is um, Nico Muli's Seeing is Believing, uh, where you played a six-stringed electric violin. Now, I know that was with uh, the Aurora Ensemble rather than the, the Britain Sinfonia, but nevertheless, it is that kind of breakthrough thing where you, where you are playing with the genres a bit. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, that piece came out of this very sort of fertile exchange programme where I also became friends with Dave Rowden. And when I came back to the UK after spending this time at, at Juilliard, I just thought I have to commission a piece from Nico Muley because he's just extraordinary and he's going... I mean, it was so clear that he was... You know, it was like meeting Mozart. And so I begged or 
pestered the because <laughs> I led Aurora Orchestra at, at that time as as well as Britain Symphonia, and I pestered them to both both groups to commission him, and Aurora commissioned this piece, and I I think it was my idea to make it for a six string electric violin because I thought it would just it would just separate the piece from the mass of concertos for acoustic four string instrument and Nico loved loved the idea and I, it, it went in a kind of space direction he thought there was something 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 about the the sound of that that instrument that reminded him of sort of um school space exploration projects and if you listen to the beginning of seeing is believing you see what i mean Interesting. So is it difficult to move from a four-string violin to a six-string violin, or does it just sort of come naturally once it, you stick it under your chin? No, it is quite difficult. It, it, one problem is playing on a on a string that's tuned to an F, which is the, the lowest string. That's very confusing. And the other issue is having six strings uh, instead of four. It means that you have to be very careful not to, not to hit the wrong one mm. and end up sort of... Playing double Because they're sort of in the same arc, as it were. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, uh, next piece of music now. And, uh, th- well, this is another kind of a jazzy one. What's this one? So Marius Nesset is a Norwegian jazz saxophonist and, and composer. And I've been lucky enough to work with him a, a few times. He, he's just extraordinary. His, his music is incredibly complex and layered and polyphonic. He's a genius improviser. And um, I thought you should hear quite an old track of his, uh, but it has all all the signatures of, of his music, and it's called Birds. with birds. The choice of my guest in conversation today, British violinist Thomas Gould. Tom is playing with the Omega Ensemble. So when you're not performing or travelling to the other side of the world to then do a radio interview on the same day, what do you like to do to, to chill out? I play tennis. You play tennis? Yeah. Have you brought your racket here? Yes. Fantastic. And um, I, I like to play a lot of tennis. I captain the men's first team at my admittedly very small and humble club in North London. But yeah, I've, I've I played tennis as a kid and then got back into it in a big way in the last few years. Right. Did Wimbledon come second to the Royal Academy? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but I do love my tennis. Interesting. But going back to that uh, young Thomas Gould, who was inspired by all his sister's friends and colleagues who would visit the house, if there's a world where that wasn't happening, what would have the alternative path been? Would it have been into sport? It's really difficult to imagine a, a life that wasn't in music in in some way. I was always quite quite lazy at school with academically, 
and um, I did okay in in most subjects, but there was nothing that really grabbed me. It's often said that uh, musicians do or artists do that because they they just can't think of anything else to do. <laughs> so it, it did answer. feel it did feel like that. I I just violin was always it was always something I I was good at and I didn't have to work that. Yeah, you didn't have to really try and it just sort of came naturally. Exactly. Is that going back to that thing where you say when you went to the Royal Academy, though, and discovered that, you know, you've really got to work at it. It is that with a lot of things, though, you're good at something, you're better than your peers, and then suddenly when you're put in that environment where you're surrounded by all the other people who are in the same boat, you suddenly realise, oh, actually, maybe I'm not that special after all. Yeah, and... And that's that's why I really had to muscle down and and work and and thank goodness I did because I think, you know, it's 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 fun when you when when you're a musician with work and obviously I'm very grateful to have opportunities to come to mm. Australia and and to and to play for international audiences. You know, never in my wildest dreams would would I have have got here. So you know, I'm very grateful for it, but. I think being a musician without enough work is it really sucks, mm. and and there, I mean in in England we're churning out musicians from from all all the music colleges, and they're all good, you know they're they're all brilliantly trained and and there's just not enough work for them all, and mm. it's it's I think it's it's really worrying. Mm. Sort of extending on that, uh, the restrictions of COVID might be behind us, but that doesn't mean that there still aren't sort of significant challenges for orchestras and musicians. And you have sort of touched on that there. But have you seen the landscape to be different now compared to pre-COVID rather than it just bounced back to exactly how it was? Yeah, I think we're very conscious at Britain Symphonia about selling tickets. And um, I think we have to be a little bit less gung-ho about about programming than, than we did because we... We need the the draws of pieces like Max Richter's Vivaldi recomposed to to balance out, you know, maybe a, a first half of premieres and things that aren't going to sell. No, it's it's tough, and and a lot of a lot of orchestras are are seeing their audience numbers down. And of course, in in the UK, we're all still reeling from the Arts Council cuts to funding, and Britain Symphonia was was one of the orchestras that that was really affected by that and also the BBC's cuts to um, their attempts to to close down the BBC singers and and to make cuts to the to the orchestras so yeah it's um it's a a pretty depressing time in in the UK art scene but we're fighting back and and looking after what what we know is is important and has has to be fought for Mm. Well, Thomas Gould, it's been absolutely awesome having you here today. But before I let you go, you do have to sort of properly introduce our final piece of music. But you did just mention it then because it is uh, Max Richter's Four Seasons Recomposed. Uh, so why is this one chosen as our final work? Well, as I as I said then, it's, it's box office gold. I mean, this is a piece that has just captured people's imaginations. And when you hear it, you can, you can see why, because it's just brilliantly inventive quirky happy music and also it, conveniently it brings me on to to talk about my next project which is uh, a bbc prom with britain symphonia in september when we will be playing this piece and i'm looking forward to that now you requested a specific uh, violinist here etienne gara and i was quite surprised to find out that there were multiple recordings of, of such a new piece of music but what is it about about this one that uh, you liked yeah, there have been so so many different recorded versions of of this piece, but for me, this one is just is fresh and actually is the is the best one on 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 record. Thomas Gould, thank you so much for joining us today. Simon, thanks so much for having me. Violinist Thomas Gould. He's in Australia to perform Philip Glass's second violin concerto, The American Four Seasons, with the Omega Ensemble at the City Recital Hall Angel Place on Tuesday, June twenty at the Newcastle City Hall on Saturday, July 1, and at the Melbourne Recital Centre on Wednesday, July 5. Get along to omegaensemble.com.au for all the details and for tickets. 
And if you're interested to find out more about what the Omega Ensemble has on offer as part of this concert series, I'd encourage you to go back to an edition of this program from a few weeks ago where I spoke with legendary Australian composer Ross Edwards, who has written a new clarinet concerto for the Omega Ensemble and artistic director David Rowden, helping to celebrate the composer's 80th birthday this year. You can find that episode and many others at 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation or by searching 2MBS In Conversation in your podcast app. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.